0: Hello and welcome to Critical Line Item. My name is Tom Ravlik, and thank you for joining me today. One of the things that we notice from time to time is that there are organisations that become prominent in the public domain, but you don't quite understand how they work. They tend to be a black box to many people. Uh, If you look at the debates surrounding organisations like GetUps and Institute of Public Affairs and others... There's a lot of people don't know and don't understand. And many people won't bother going beyond the media coverage or the commentary. What I'll be doing today is talking to Gideon Rosner, who's a Director of Policy at the Institute of Public Affairs, to open up the door just a little ajar so you can understand what someone like Gideon, who many people see on television or on Twitter, um actually does, where he's come from, and how the IPA works in terms of setting its agenda and who has a say along the way. Gideon, thanks for joining me. G'day, great to be here. Now, Gideon, Gideon there's a lot of people who see you uh, on um, in various forums on Twitter or uh, via Pay TV or wherever else you pop up. They won't understand yeah, necessarily where you've been to get to the Institute of Public Affairs. Are you able to, you know, give us your career
1: in a yellow post-it note version? Sure, I'll, I'll compress it as much as I can. Uh, I've had a few jobs in my harried thirty-three and a bit years, but uh, I, I guess going back to my political beginnings, I, um, I was a political nerd from the get-go. In fact, I joined the Liberal Party. Uh, of Australia on my 16th birthday, because I was the coolest kid on the playground. Anyway, um, but of course, I was also raised to believe that law is what a Jewish boy does if he can't stand the sight of blood. So I studied law at Melbourne University, but during that time, I uh, got involved with student politics and really fleshed out my ideas and my beliefs and my sort of philosophy. And uh, subsequently, you know, I did my three years as a lawyer and didn't particularly enjoy it, but then I, I moved on, and when I wanted to get out, I did a bit of ministerial staffing. Uh, I worked for a bloke named Michael Ronaldson, who was the then Minister of uh, the Special Minister of State, so I worked for him until Malcolm Turnbull reared his ugly head, uh, at which point my boss was given the heave ho, and my job was abolished, and thereafter I worked for Josh Frydenberg when he was Minister for Resources, Energy and Northern Australia until the end of the 2016 election when I thought I'd strike out alone and go for a state pre-selection which I lost but did but had a lot of fun doing and then following that uh, I sort of I had you know I was a full-time pre-selection candidate but I did a bit of consulting on the side but um, you know I I was uh, didn't have any better anything else to do and uh, I did a day a week for a few places including the IPA and the IPA just took off and I just absolutely loved it and uh, I'm absolutely having the time of my life. What caused you to get interested in politics because
0: um, anyone that watches you on, on forums like sky would would know that you've had uh you got you got an aptitude or a love for for the debate you got the gift of the camp but what did you what got you what got
1: you interested in it well, it's a hard it's a hard question people ask me they've been asking me my entire adult life for obvious reasons but politics political interest it's it's a disease of the mind it's a it's a form of madness uh it gets into your blood it doesn't let up and i guess the reason for that is that you know it's so so varied politics so you know you could be talking about high philosophy or you know routine gossip you could be talking about the design of a public policy program or the raw arithmetic of electoral politics and doing what i'm doing now i get to talk about all sorts of really important issues and I get to talk about them in in a really sort of open way, and in, in, in the bat- I get to engage in the battle of ideas. Um, it's very different from looking at issues in a in a from a political angle or an electoral angle. Electoral angle. Uh, what we really do is talk about values, and that's been a really really great way to have you know my obvious political interest, but also uh, talk really about some very very important things for Australia and some very, very interesting public policy areas. How useful has the legal background been to you in pursuing some of it? Look, quite useful, but that mostly comes from what I learned on the job when I was a lawyer. I must say, you know, people... This is what I can't understand. So many people are doing law degrees now. Um, They basically are giving them out in Wheaties boxes. And I'll talk to somebody and I'll say, there aren't many jobs for lawyers. And they'll say... Oh, yeah, but it's useful for other things. Even my law degree wasn't that particularly useful for when I was a lawyer. I mean, certain elements of it obviously were, like corporations, law and contract and things like that. But there's so much crap that you learn, Um, you know, weird Marxist legal theory and all sorts of other funny ideas that permeate those institutions. So, look, it it has been helpful because it helps you read legislation and, uh, you know, so much of public policy is now done in the courts and uh, by regulatory agencies under the radar. But um, yeah, look, I'm I'm more grateful, I guess, for the experience of being a lawyer because as much as I grumble and complain about it, um, it did give me the discipline and the, uh, you know, I'll I'll never send anything out without triple checking it. I'll um, make sure that nothing has any spelling errors in it. I mean, there's a simple things that unfortunately a lot of, um, I guess, people in the public debate overlook, but, you know, it's important to be able to have a, a certain level of discipline in your messaging and, and how you, how you engage with the, the broader debate. Some of the philosophy though can be
0: rather important. I get in. I mean, I remember grimacing when I sat through processes of communications lectures back in 1990, I think it was um, in my, for my first qualification being a bachelor of arts in journalism before I discovered accounting and all the, all the wonderful stuff that I've done since then. Um, you know, the philosophy and, and think and thinking about stuff uh, sets up a framework for thought,
1: does it not? Yeah, look, it does. Absolutely, it does, and um, that's a fair comment. Um, but unfortunately, our universities really, you know, and I did arts as well, and God, you know, the arts was even less useful for, for obvious reasons. I mean, a good liberal arts degree would be fantastic—a place where you could learn and engage in good faith about philosophy ideas, the basis of our civilization you can even talk about colonialism and and, and the, bad, the the worser elements of our history and our civilization as well as the better ones. but unfortunately at universities everything is just put through the meat grinder of sort of neo-marxist deconstructionist postmodernist hogwash and really you know when you're when you're, when you're applying a feminist critique to uh, you know uh, Jane Austen, uh, you're really losing the flavour of what it is that you're trying to, to study and trying to appreciate.
0: Yeah, well, that, that, um,
1: that was a, a
0: colourful summation of the fact that arts degrees can sometimes be useless. But the it, it, coming, coming to where you're at, at the Institute of Public Affairs, you've got, um, you have a fairly broad remit. You've got 19 areas of policy sitting beneath you as the policy director how does that work in terms of um basically you know getting research done but also how do you how do you set the agenda i guess the agenda agenda setting
1: is the second part of it really yeah well i mean look i'm 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 lucky to have, uh, and I'm not the director of research, um, that's Daniel Wild, who you might see on Sky as well, who does a fantastic, fantastic job. But we're lucky at the IPA to have, you know, we, we do we do entertain a whole lot of policy areas, but we're lucky to have a really, really great team of really professional, professional researchers who put together uh, some really, really interesting ways of looking at how the principles of freedom can be used to, make Australia better, to improve the lives of, of Australian people. Um, so you, you might see me on Sky News or on a podcast or something, or, you know, indeed a podcast like this, but everything we do at its bedrock is our, is our research and um, and that's where we really get our, uh, our our policy agenda from. In terms of setting the agenda, you're right. I mean, we can't look after every... I mean, the, the IPA has um, around... 50 staff altogether, but that includes our campus coordinators and so on. I mean, we do not have the resources, obviously, of a public university or anything like that. So we do have to prioritise certain issues. So, you know, there are members who say, well, the IPA should be doing X, Y, and Z, but there are only so many hours in a day. So I guess we focus on uh, the main theatres of war in the battle of freedom versus statism. Um, and importantly, I guess the ones where we say what other people can't or won't. There aren't many people. Uh, or organisations in Australia that are standing up for free and open debate with integrity on climate change. There are very few organisations that support repealing anti-freedom or anti-free speech laws like uh, the ra- like eight, Section 18C of the Racial Discrimination Act. There are very few organisations that would have given somebody like Peter Ridd the support that we gave him. So really, we have to, I, I suppose, work out where our contribution will have the most impact. And and you know, we have six thousand members of the IPA. We always um, we always consider what IPA members would be interested in and that's a very nice segues nicely into a plug for anybody who wants to support the work of the IPA please do go to Ipa.org.au forward slash join. I normally conclude my podcast
0: with a mention of where people can find out my that's things good. out. <laughs> now getting in, you mentioned three policy areas, one of which is climate change, one of which is uh, in fact, two of the things you mentioned, Paul, with the climate change, and then you've got the sort of repeal, with the notions of repealing things like 18 um, with the range of economic issues that you cover as well, which we've seen in recent times. But how how do you prioritize it? Because you've got members, you've got donors, you've got all sorts of people that get involved in the process, what's your method of outreach to the membership I know from an accounting body perspective um, you would there are, there's a bit of push from membership when things go wrong with the ATO. or there's a bit of um, there's a bit of pull if you like uh, from the accounting body when feedback is needed on a legislative proposal how does it work given you the different Cohorts you engage with,
1: yeah. Look, um, I, I guess you sort of, with your own experience, you've, you've. Um, I mean, that's how it is. A lot of, the, a lot of the time, there are, I guess, push factors and pull factors. But so much of the agenda comes at us. There's so much that happens. Uh, so many, frankly, silly proposals and developments and policies that need to be critiqued and considered. Um, but again, you know, we can't be all things to all people. We cannot talk about, for instance, uh, health policy. Um, and I mean, I can, I do, and I've certainly got views on it. But we don't currently have a research program in relation to the health system. Um, there are plenty of other organisations that do really good work. On in fact, the uh, you know the education system as well. In terms of the nuts and bolts on how schools are run, the Cis does some really really good work. So it's about, I suppose, finding areas in which we have the policy acumen and the expertise to. Make an informed comment, and again, things that are um, things that are, are are current and where the IPA can make an impact.
0: So there's yeah, you've got the average member, you know, the average Joe that joins up. Hmm. Um, when you've got a body of you know, and it's been written about over time. You know, the, the hefty hefty donors, if I can put it that way. So, the do the donors have any input over time
1: in terms of views and ideas? No, not really. I mean, and this is one of the big... I mean, am sure people who follow me on Twitter will see the 10,000 lunatics who weigh in on any given day saying, you know, asking all sorts of questions about our funding and all sorts of other things. But broadly speaking, no. I mean, I, nobody's ever told me what to write for the IPA. Nobody's ever, certainly never, offered up any preferred outcomes for policy. I, I speak to our members. I speak to our, you know, people who are general rank and file members. As you said, I speak to people who might have the means to contribute a little bit extra and and really help us out um, in, uh, you know, building up the organisation so that we can do more. But broadly speaking, what people don't understand is people don't donate to the IPA because they want a particular research outcome or a particular message. They donate to the IPA because the IPA speaks to them and in a lot of instances speaks for them. So, yeah, you know, uh, uh, somebody who has spent their entire working life of 30 years building up a successful business and might have a bit of coin, uh, might look to the IPA because we are the only organisation or often one of the only organisations that has something to say about the fact that their grandchildren are now coming back devoted Marxists who are effectively turning their back on the values and the um, freedoms that that made up their livelihood and their family wealth. Um, So I think this is just the idea that, um, our priorities are determined by donors or anything like that I mean it's 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 basically fake news I mean you know we we're lucky to have a lot of really really good donors who who help us out but again I make the point they they help us out because because they identify with what we have to say we don't we don't cut the cloth of what we have to say based on who's donating
0: yeah the I, I guess see the and the, the other challenge with that one is you there's little information about donors on your website, which is probably why it is that uh, you get that kind of questioning from people on Twitter and elsewhere.
1: Yeah, correct. Um, But, you know, there's a a reason why. I mean, it's frequently asked. uh, You know, uh, to go to your question, there are plenty of, Questions on that through Twitter and all sorts of other things. But fundamentally, we we value donor privacy. That's the long and the short of it. I mean, I get a lot of abuse doing what I do. Um, You know, I get death threats over Twitter and everything else. But I'm a big boy. And frankly, that's a sign I'm doing my job correctly. But do I want, you know, the little old lady who gives us $100 a year for our Western Civilization program or the bloke who has a a factory who gives us $2,000 a year maybe for our red tape reduction program to be on some sort of register so that all these lunatics on Twitter can look them up and bombard them with abuse. I mean, we have the secret ballot in Australia for a reason because you shouldn't have to declare to your politics uh, in most instances. It, it really is fundamentally a private matter. I mean, if our ideas are, are bad, tell me why. You know, everything's out there. All our research, all our positions, all our um, output – uh, the letters we write to MPs all publicly available. You know, discredit that. Play the play the ball, not the man.
0: Yeah, it, uh, it it's just one of those questions that does come up on Twitter. I see it. I notice it. Uh, it comes up in conversations from time to time because the comparison between yourselves and and GetUp and other organisations is made frequently.
1: Yeah, it is. And well, the first point to make about that is that GetUp is a very different organisation to us. They run, you know, they they hand out how to vote cards, they endorse candidates, they uh, run television advertisements and billboard advertisements. So they're more of a a campaigning organisation. We're obviously a, a research um, institute. But fundamentally, I think, I think the right makes a few mistakes when it discusses GetUp. I mean, I don't like GetUp either. I don't like their values. I don't like their methods. I don't like... Um, their attitude um, I don't like the way they manipulate facts and uh, and everything else but fundamentally you know get up are doing what is their right in a free society they are I don't doubt they're on some level a grassroots organizing organization what what we need to do is not bitch and moan about get up pardon my language and talk about how we can regulate get up out of existence we need we need to work out a way to to organize ourselves you do you achieve a lot more by putting out your own speech than trying to shut another mode of speech up.
0: I think it it, it, it goes back to your point about this being a contest of ideas. Um, We've already mentioned uh, social media as one way in which communication of ideas takes place. Um, How do you um, decide which mode of communication to use for a particular policy item and the intensity with which to
1: attack a particular theme they're two different they're two different issues yeah so i mean in terms of well, we're lucky to have a great media team as well led by evan Maholland, our director of communications. so he'll be the best person to work out how you know where we can get our message out, whether that means a, an opinion piece in The Australian, for example, or a few quotes given to somebody from, you know, even from The Guardian. I mean, I'll talk to anybody who will listen to me, quite frankly, uh, because it, the important thing is that we get the message out. Um, but that's sort of a more strategic decision led by Evan and the team in, in the media group. Um, in ter- but in, in terms of the, the subject matter, as I said, we, we just decide what, what we need to prioritise and what the most need. Like any other business, you, you, you work out what products you want to put out there based on the market demand. And there are certain policy areas in which the IPA has a very, there's a very strong demand for the voice of the IPA and for the, the values that it it, um, it promotes. Uh, if you look
0: at, if we can switch to the modern day uh, medium, if you like, not saying modern, but it's been around for a while. If you look at social media, as a mode
1: of communication. Yeah, well, it is a mode of communication. And that's actually a very, very good point, because... Um, I mean, I, I use Twitter pretty prolifically. I um, I tweet in my sleep. Um, that's sort of a personal thing, but I, it is used in a lot of instances to get research out. But more, but the more important development in, in social media are, stream, you know, the, the ability to stream podcasts and make YouTube videos. And those are really, really powerful because uh, it's a way of getting around, just like Talkback Radio was, just like, um, you know, uh, Twitter was in its infancy. Uh, podcasting and YouTube videos are a way to get your message out directly without going through the gatekeepers of the conventional media. And given the way in which the media tends to lean, not all outlets, but I would say most or um, a, a fair number of them, it, it's better to be able to put our message out without the, the filters that come from journalists who are often running a, a different agenda. And uh, particularly in relation to our work with young people, it's the best way to engage with a, a cohort of Australians who Typically, are exposed to a very, very narrow range of viewpoints, and we're very proud of the work we do to expose them to something a little bit different.
0: Now, you see, in traditional media, uh, say print, um, radio, to an extent, although you can sort of get a bit rough and ready there, um, it's not often the currency that sort of people, you know, we spoke earlier on about the, the notion of playing the man and not the ball, right? Um, in social media, the, the issue of playing the person tends to be amplified a bit. Um, I guess in your case, recently you did a video in the middle of Melbourne, <laughs> per- perfectly perfectly socially distanced. Yep. Um, but it attracted a major reaction from people. Can you describe what went on in the Institute of Public Affairs when that clip
1: was released? Yeah, I can actually because it was. I remember the day very, very well. Um, I remember one day, I think it was a Monday or a Tuesday. I, you know, this was in the heart of the lockdown. You know, everything had been shut, and I went out for. You know, it was in, it was in the days when they said leave once a day to go to the shops and to exercise. So I was, and I lived here in. Spencer Street in the Melbourne CBD and I was wandering around, and I went out for my permitted walk and it was a terrible grey sort of a day. All my favourite shops were shut and all my favourite bars were shut and there was nobody in the city uh, except for you know, <laughs> a few people who happened to live here like myself and packs of police officers and high-vis waiting for the opportunity to muscle up to people. So I was very, very, well, frankly, I was very depressed, um, you know, really bummed out. And I got so, home. No, get, get get in walking the streets, cracking the sads. No, it, it yeah, it uh, it happens one it happens on occasion. Uh, um, but yeah, no, I, I was really bummed out. I, I I it was really, and this has been uh, we're getting off track here, but this is the whole thing about Corona. I mean, it's it it seemed like a very seismic historical event, and we're being we're ushering a new era that might not be for the better. But anyway, so I got home, bummed out, didn't feel like doing anything work wise that day, but sort of. Slumped back to my desk, and my boss John Roscombe, called me, and he asked me what I thought. We had a bit of a chat, and during the conversation, we decided to release the video that was calling for the end of the lockdown. Or we were first step. We wanted to we 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 settled on our broad message, which was you know these lockdowns may have been necessary in the first week or so, but they're going to cost a lot more than they um, a lot more than they benefit. And we should end them. And I was obviously charged with producing a video and, and leading our um, our um, our effort in, in terms of getting that that message out there and disseminating that research. Uh, and from that moment on, I just felt so much better because I had something to focus on. I had a um, I had a direction again. I had something to I, I could actually at least be a part of the process of of ending the terrible quagmire into which we fallen so um we did that anyway i recorded the video it was released i think on a saturday and i was cursed and and uh you know that i think it was viewed in the end about six hundred fifty thousand times across various platforms and all manner of people weighed in i mean sam neill the actor called me an imbecile or something but that was okay because first i'm used to what the hell do i care but secondly um the the private messages and the emails like i got Hundreds of emails, uh, direct messages, every every social media account I had on every platform, people found the the direct messages, and 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 invariably they were messages like "Thank you so much for saying what I feel like I couldn't um, for articulating what I am silently thinking, but I'm getting howled down at dinner party." Well, there weren't even any dinner parties, but you know what I mean for even suggesting it. So that, I guess, was an example of of how that how he arrived at that that policy uh, and that position and um you know as a result we were, uh, we were the first organization to call for ending the lockdown we were the first organization to talk about that about the fact that as i said a lot of these restrictions will cause more harm than they will prevent and uh look i'm really proud of what we did to to move the debate along the the slagging off on twitter i must say is a, is a sideshow i mean again it's a kpi if i've got lunatics on twitter um you know threatening to kill me basically it means i'm, I'm doing my job right <laughs> Now,
0: let me explore another issue here with you, given that we are where we are with the conversation. Um, one of the concerns I've had over the years in policy debate and, and having been a policy wonk in, in two organisations, not just one, um, is that can, there's a point at which a policy debate is had on substance. And then the minute you go into, uh, and then something happens, it escalates into something else. It turns into uh, name calling, right? Or, you know, nicknames calling for people and all that sort of stuff. Is there um, a sense that you get that from time to time there's a point at which the discussion spins into another direction, Gideon, and it becomes sort of counterproductive?
1: Yeah, look, at, uh, that's a, a typical... Well, that's a common question that's asked about the state of political debate and so on. I'm not so fussed about the name-calling, to be perfectly honest, and I'm not, you know, pure as the driven snow either. I'll slag somebody off on Twitter if they've slagged me off. I'll, you know... I mean, I, I, think, that, I think that politics has a... It's inherently, or it should be, a a area of interest that evokes a lot of passion um and i and i think that's for the best i think the best thing we can do is argue vigorously if we need to for what we believe in and and arrive at the truth through the good good faith clash of opinions via rigorous debate than for there to be this faux consensus this you know national cabinet style we're, we're going to take away your livelihoods and liberties, but we're, we've got to unite front in doing that. I would much rather, you know, people yell at each other during question time than people from all different sides of politics conspire with each other to, again, I make the point, take away my livelihood and my liberties. But, um, you know, more more to the point, uh, it, it's it it. I think if we drain the passion out of politics, we lose a lot. But again, you know, it's a matter of degree. It's a matter of you know. You, You don't want to resort to the ad hominem too quickly. But, um, yeah, look, and I I think also the other issue with all that is I think the right gives into the temptation to to engage in outrage culture like the left does. So we'll see what the left does by cancelling somebody for a tweet or an article or something, and we'll typically jump on as well. I think that's actually a mistake. I think we can critique other people's point of views without demanding they be sacked or cancelled or anything else because, really... We know nowhere know better than the other side once we sort of start getting to that sort of rubbish.
0: Yeah, I mean the interesting thing for me, and, and again, I speak with someone from, you know, having both journalistic and, and policy experience, is that you get to a you get to a certain point where, um, yeah, I mean even even the you know, right wing nut job versus the left wing whatever the terminology is, it gets to a point where it's, there is, um, yes, there's passion, but uh, it becomes uh, a kind of a punch and duty show yeah. on social media where you, sometimes the substance of the issue is lost in all the flashing and colour. Uh, from my perspective, what do you reckon?
1: Look, it is, but, I mean, you, you, you can't judge the entire political debate from Twitter. I think that's a mistake that a lot of journalists, quite frankly, make. Um, you know, back in the good old days, the journalists would have to go out with a, a video camera into the street to do a Vox Pop. Now they just collate what the public appears to be on Twitter. But Twitter really represents a very small section of Australia and, indeed, the world. Um, it's good for some things, uh, you know, especially for those of us that are in, in, in a, you know, to engage with the the political debate daily but um i think i think fundamentally yeah i i i think i think the fact that we might use a, a few naughty words on twitter really takes away from the bigger issue which is the fact that in terms of policy ideas themselves they really we're in such a state of blandness with with public policy debate i mean we have all sorts of economic problems in this country not least of all the fact that we've tanked our economy for um the coronavirus um but the only solutions that are thrown up are things like stimulus and building i mean how much can you see i mean by that logic you may as well pay five hundred thousand people to dig a big hole another five hundred thousand to fill it in again so I, I, again i'm not i'm not too phased about the, the the color and movement of of political debate um especially on social media in fact i think that's probably not a bad thing because it means that other people engage it makes it exciting for the layperson not just the swamp dweller who you know, seeks to benefit from it all. But um, the bigger issue, as I said, is is the, is the lack of boldness uh, and and lateral thinking when it comes to what passes for public policy debate in this country. Yeah, but you, you can't have a substantive policy debate in 280 characters. So
0: that, I mean, you, you simply... That's, true. Then, uh, that's That's the core of my question. You simply can't.
1: No, but that's not what Twitter is for. But I mean, if, you know, it, it, if you if you want if you want uh, high level intellectual analysis, you don't go to Twitter. I mean, as I said, go to our website. That's where our reports are. Um, but yeah, look, it, it's it's I think it, I think as with most social media, I think it, it works best if you know its flaws and its uh, limitations as well as its possibilities.
0: Um, I've focused a little bit in questioning on the the, the weaknesses of uh, contemporary debate. I think I need to turn the coin the other way and ask you what we can do better in, in, in policy discourse because, it, as you all know, um, yeah, Twitter is the way some people participate. Other people do the submission to government thing. Other people might be members of organizations that consult them, such as a professional accounting body, uh, like the one I work for for eight or nine years. What is it that we can do to improve the status of and quality of policy
1: debate in Australia? I guess the first thing is to stop canceling everyone. You know, stop stop trying to howl everybody down. And I try to do this as well. I try and you know, I make an effort to read The Guardian and places like that, and I'll pick out an article, and I'll you know sometimes I'll agree with some of it, sometimes I'll agree with none of it, sometimes I'll agree with most of it, um, and I'll say X, Y, and Z is right, X, A, B, and C is wrong, but that is very different from saying this this speech, this article is dangerous. This is going to put lives at risk. No article, no word, no form of speech will ever put lives at risk. People who act on act on it sometimes will especially if it's particularly nasty and and pernicious ideology. But this idea that words and ideas in themselves are inherently dangerous, it's not only wrong, but it's actually counterproductive because it means that human civilization needs the open exchange of ideas to advance. Um, Some of the most unpopular, some of the most well, some of the most... um, What's the word I'm looking for? The most enduring scientific discoveries have been the most unpopular. You know, whether it be evolution, whether it be the bloke who worked out that doctors washing their hands would prevent would would reduce infant mortality. I mean, that guy was so out of out of uh, against the grain in his day at suggesting the doctor's hands were unclean that he was put in jail, I think. So the best thing we can do for political debate is to open it up and to say, okay, say whatever you like. If you're wrong. You'll be critiqued and maybe even ridiculed. But this 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 idea that we should meet views that make people feel safe and not others, I mean, we really are narrowing the band of intellectual debate and, and arranging society in silos where we don't talk to each other anymore. We just yell. Yeah, I
0: give, it is kind of interesting watching the way uh, the debate plays out with you know, cancelling and bleeding and and whatever have you, um, I'm not sure what you get from that other than monotony. But getting it, 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 given that we're sort of almost uh, out of time, there's there are things about uh, Australia's political institutions that, that from time to time cause people concern. And there's been a declining trust in, in institutions. And I'm sort of reflecting on developments in in both major political parties over a period of time, probably the past decade. Um, what do you, how do you think, just as a closer, what do you think we need to be doing to improve
1: the, the trust that people have in those we elect? Well, I mean, those we elect is one element of it but by, I mean really all our public institutions that I can think of have become politicised but not just that but they've become politicised in such a way that you can't even say that they achieve outcomes for the people they're supposed to serve um, look at for instance the courts that have been tied up with frivolous legal complaints under the Environmental Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act that gives standing to all these protest groups to hold up projects that create thousands of jobs for little or no benefit. Look at the ABC which is supposed to be a nas- national broadcaster but increasingly caters to a very narrow body of people. Look at the response to the coronavirus where governments have shut down whole swathes of the economy for very little uh, with l- very little I might add epidemiological merit um, based on the advice of people like Annalise Van Diemen who compared the coronavirus to the captain Cook exploration mission i mean these are institutions which are so out of touch with mainstream common sense Uh, i don't trust them either to be perfectly honest with you um and that's what i had to say about the debate over the coronavirus app you know i didn't download it i'm very against it in principle i don't think the government should ever track its own citizens in that way um people said oh yeah but facebook already does it well the fact of the matter is i trust facebook more than i trust the state of victoria right now uh, you know, Facebook might take my data and use it to s- sell me, a you know, used Hyundai or something. Um, the, the Victorian Department of Health could get this information based on the Safe app, which is basically so ineffective, it's probably now debunked anyway. But they could have gotten it and ordered me to stay in my home for 14 days if I, uh, on a whim. Um, so really, to be, rebuild public trust, the, organo- the institutions have to provide, to prove themselves to really be trustworthy. And that's just not the case at the moment. Um, just on
0: the ABC, Gideon, is it still the IPA's position
1: that the government ought to flog it off? Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Why? Um, well, well, firstly, I mean, the, the, to go back to first principles, the government should only ever provide things that the private sector can't or won't. The ABC is a broadcaster. Now, the private sector provides ample content when it comes to broadcasting. Uh, the ABC itself will say that it's not actually a market failure broadcaster. It's, in other words, it's not there to broadcast things that other stations won't. It's there just to be a, a broadcaster and compete with the others. So as a matter of principle, I don't think the government should run a broadcasting service any more than it should run an airline or a bank. Um, but more to the point, if you do accept that a national broadcaster is warranted, you cannot look at the ABC's content and, and say that in any way caters to the nation it caters to a small subset of the nation and its ratings are healthy you know Q&A might get a million viewers in one week but that is not the national population of 25 million and more to the point something like Q&A would be attracted to advertisers you know do you think mercedes benz or rolex don't want to advertise on Q&A to the affluent audience that tunes in week after week of course they do um and lastly of course selling off the abc would i mean it, it's a worthwhile asset uh, it would Fetch a fair price, and that should be used to pay down the debt, which we've basically we've doubled in the course of this uh, idiotic coronavirus response.
0: So, in essence, the IPA's perspective, if I'm paraphrasing I, it.
1: I, I should i should point out that these are my views, not necessarily the IPA's, but I think. <laughs> <it's>, uh, <yeah. laughs>
0: We're running a disclaimer in
1: Invisible Inc. right now. All right, all right. We're a broad church. We're a broad church.
0: Yeah. Okay. Um, Gideon, if people want to know more about the Institute
1: of Public Affairs
0: and what you do,
1: where can they find you? Yes, just head to ipa.org.au. You'll find all the information about our research, our podcast, our content, how to become a member um, and enjoy all the benefits of IPA membership that come from that. And also, of course, our youth program, Generation Liberty which is having a really, really good uh, impact on campuses and, as I said, exposing young people to ideas that are in very short supply for that particular demographic. So um, all that and more, please do head to ipa.org.au. Oh, Gideon, uh,
0: it's been great to talk to you. My my been a bit of along the way, that, but uh, thank you for your time. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. No worries.